Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You may have seen signs on I-91 for the Connecticut Veterans Home. The domiciliary is in Rocky Hill, along with a long-term nursing care facility, among other buildings on more than 90 acres. Many of the residents at the Veterans Home were once homeless or in danger of homelessness. But a lot of the buildings are outdated and in need of improvement, and there's plenty of land not being used. Today, Where We Live, we'll talk with Connecticut's Veterans Affairs Commissioner, Sean Connolly, about a recent consultant's report that identifies ways the state can better use the property to serve veterans. Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman also joins us. She's been leading the governor's working group to improve the Rocky Hill campus. We'll also take a broader look at how Connecticut is meeting the needs of its changing veterans demographic and get an update on local advocacy efforts with Michael Zakea, a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and Iraq War veteran. You can join the conversation 860-275-7266. Comment on our website wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First off, I want to welcome Commissioner Sean Connolly and Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman to where we live. Good morning. Good morning, Thanks for Lucy. Having us. So, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Rocky Hill campus, again, I think a lot of us see that sign on I-91 heading north, but for those of us not uh, familiar, tell us about the history of the Veterans Home and what else is there. Commissioner? Sure. Well, uh, it's 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 important to note that Connecticut actually led in the nation back in 1864 with the first Veterans Home in the nation. That was actually out in Darien, Connecticut. Fast forward to the late 1930s, Connecticut started a construction project and opened up the campus in Rocky Hill in 1940, moved our veterans from Darien to Rocky Hill. So the campus in Rocky Hill really goes back to, uh, to 1940. And obviously there's a lot of history. Uh, can you talk, Lieutenant Governor um, Wyman, about getting called to chair this working group uh, by Governor Malloy to really improve that campus, uh, maybe to connect it better with the community to improve the services there? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting um, we found, we learned a lot after Vietnam. We learned a lot that we should be doing more for our veterans. And the governor really feels this uh, a strong need to help out as much as possible. The veterans that we have coming home now are different than the ones we had before. But when we look at the Rocky Hill campus, we look at some beautiful campus of, like you said, about 92 acres. Um, it was built in, in the 1940s and stuff, but the fact is, and it really hasn't been updated and modernized the way it should have been done. And so we're looking at veterans that are living in um, dormitory-looking places instead of having um, a one apartment, a, a room with a bathroom in it. Not a big apartment or any of that, but even a room, their own room with a bathroom in it. Now, we should be doing that. And so when we looked at the buildings and saw this, we immediately, the governor said, let's get people together. So we got people from the nonprofit world, from the business world, from the veterans themselves, people that are living there, and there are our veterans that live there, and those that are off campus, and all sat down to start looking at what we should be doing and hired somebody to come in and give us an assessment of how and what we can do with this beautiful piece of property, um, some of the buildings are historic buildings that we can't do anything with. Then there's others that we probably should be taking down. 
So we're looking at that and still studying the study to see what we can do. Um, but one of the first things we will do is modernize it. Um, we'll hear more about that consultant's report in a few minutes. But Commissioner Connolly, Lieutenant Governor Wyman touched on this about the demographics. Um, tell us who's living at the Veterans Home and about the um, unique services that are provided on campus. Sure. Well, we have actually two facilities, two two of our core functions. The first core function is uh, the one the Lieutenant Governor mentioned, our residential facilities and services. That is uh, was set up as a transitional uh, facility for veterans who, who, who were homeless or, as you mentioned, in danger uh, of becoming homeless. Um, along with that uh, service uh, of having the facility there to live, we, uh, of course, provide meals, but we also provide our veteran service officers that help those veterans uh, access the benefits from the federal VA that they've earned and deserved. Uh, we team them if they need uh, support from uh, well, substance abuse support services we have. We've recently teamed with the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, our sister agency, to provide those services as well. We've teamed with the Department of Labor to provide our veterans the services they need to get to uh, employment. So a lot of uh, activity going on in that arena. We also have the health care center. Uh, I mentioned going back to 1940 that the campus, was, of course, was established in 1940. There really hasn't been a lot of work done since 1940 except for a major project in 2008 when the Levito Healthcare Center was uh, established, and that's uh, really a, a gem on campus. And uh, we, we have 125 beds in there for long-term care, chronic disease care for, for veterans who need that level of care, uh, and we're really proud of that facility as well. When you look at the residential footprint, I mean, how, how full is it now, and what's the age range of the veterans you're serving and helping? For the residential facility, uh, it's about 200-plus uh, of veterans who are currently uh, on our campus. Uh, the age range, it's, it's, it's you know, a higher percentage of those are, are 60 uh, and above, and so we're serving that population in that facility. Um, as we move forward and as we look at the demographics that came out of the, uh, the report, um, our, while our veteran population in Connecticut overall will go down, the older uh, segment of the veteran population will increase, and so we're starting to think about you know, what services are those veterans going to need, you know, thinking in terms of assisted living services and, and those kinds of things for that, for that population of, of the veteran community. I understand from reading the report that um, 80% of the residents there now have stayed for more than a year. Another 60% have been there three years or more. So when you look at that, and I know the consultant's report talks about um, the addition of several types of housing options for people who may need support at one point in their life, but then they can move on. So, Lieutenant Governor, can you talk about um, ways to better use the, the campus that you have that variation in, in housing? Yeah, there, there is variation. But I, let me just go back one step on... Um, the other day, there was a very large picnic there that um, the unions put on, and I happened to run into a woman who was helping to serve the food, and I thought she was a union member, and she wasn't. She was a veteran who now lives on campus, and they will live there for a little while because she's got a job. She's fortunate, but she needed help because she didn't, she didn't couldn't get a car. She needed to have no, she had no place to live. And this is a young female who is now living on campus. So what, what the commission has done is opened up that campus so that people are feeling a little bit more invited into it. And so I want to commend him on that. But as we look at the kind of housing, we have to continue to look at, as the as commissioner talked about, assisted living for some people. We have some private houses right off the campus, and maybe we have to be looking at more of that for families. 
Um, we have to look to see, you know, some of those veterans that are just coming out to give them that step up um, besides helping them get jobs, having the housing till they can afford the jobs. Um, yes, we are the second state in the nation to end homelessness that for our veterans, but we have different ways of doing that. And I think that's what our whole idea of the veterans home and hospital is becoming more and more of adjusting to modernizing the, the services that we give. The same year that uh, Governor Malloy established the Rocky Hill Working Group, there was a legislative uh, a committee that looked at the Veterans Home, the Program Review and Investigations Committee. Um, you know, some of the recommendations were highly critical when they looked at, again, transforming the residential options so you have transitional and permanent supportive housing, improving substance abuse treatment services, uh, having more social workers work with the population. I think that there was a, a concern about less staff. So how, um, how have you been improving on that? those recommendations came out? Sure. One of the key uh, ideas that you mentioned w- was social work staff and, and, and the number of social workers per veteran. One of our, one of our proudest accomplishments, and we're proud of a, a lot of our collaboration and partnerships over the last you know, 16 to 18 months, uh, but one that helps the veterans right there on campus is our partnership with, uh, with Chrysalis. And through our partnership with Chrysalis, we've added uh, up to five case managers, and those case managers are there on campus in our facility there to meet with the veterans who live there. And so that we're meeting with them more frequently, we're helping them identify their goals and objectives, whatever they may be, whether they be long-term housing, education, financial uh, goals and objectives, but meeting with them more frequently, helping them to remove the barriers for reaching those goals and objectives. And so we've been excited about that partnership uh, as well. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me are Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman and Commissioner Sean Connolly of the State Department of Veterans Affairs. We're talking about the Veterans Home in Rocky Hill and, and ways the state can improve uh, services for residents there, also for the general veterans community. If you're a veteran and have a question, please join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to get back to um, the report's findings on the demographics. You mentioned that there will be a decline in the next uh, uh, 10, 20 years. Um, how will we see the demographic changing? Um, from what I understand, I think there are a majority of male veterans over 55 in the state of Connecticut. What about um, the women uh, veterans that we're hearing? Um, how's that going to change? And uh, ways to attract um, younger veterans to seek help at your campus? Sure. Uh, so, yes, the, the women veteran population is projected to increase, and that's, that's only normal because we see more uh, women serving in our militaries. Uh, so currently we have uh, a wing of one of the domiciliary buildings that is dedicated to women veterans. We expect that that will increase, and, and under a plan that you know, can be phased in over time, a flexible, phased, scalable approach to, to updating the housing that exists for our veterans on campus, we expect to, again, continue to dedicate space for our women veterans, and also, you know, work with our social workers so that we can uh, meet the needs of those women veterans. We've got a number of of partnerships that I mentioned. Uh, The federal VA uh, in West Haven and Newington uh, recently opened a a, a clinic for our women veterans, and so we continue to stay in touch with them. Members of our staff uh, meet with members of their staff. I meet uh, on occasion with with the leadership of, of the federal VA in Connecticut. So, Continuing those partnerships, continuing to work with our veteran service organizations so that we can continue to serve all of our veterans, including the women veteran population. 
You mentioned the federal VA. Um, when people hear reference to the state uh, Veterans Affairs Department, there might be some confusion about what your services are versus the federal VA. Can you clear that up for people not familiar with the, the system? Sure. So the, the federal VA is primarily uh, two, two sides. They have the hospital side and they have the benefit side. On the hospital side, here in Connecticut, they have two hospitals. They have the one in West Haven, Connecticut, and the one in Newington, Connecticut. The federal VA is providing... Uh, the acute care that our veterans need and that they qualify for. Uh, on our side, as the State Department of Veterans Affairs, we have the core functions I mentioned at our Rocky Hill campus, but we also have our Office of Advocacy and Assistance. And what that does is we have satellite offices in each of the congressional districts here in Connecticut with veteran service officers that work for us at the State Department of Veterans Affairs. Those veteran service officers are out there in the communities, available to our veterans in the communities, and we have over 200,000 veterans here in Connecticut. Uh, available to them to help them access the benefits they've earned and deserved, whether it be pensions, disabilities, all those uh, variety of, of benefits that they've earned and deserved. Lieutenant Governor Wyman, uh, you mentioned the working group that you've been leading. Uh, recently, they met to look at this consultant's report. So what are some of the big takeaways and what happens to this report? You know, we gave them the report. They are literally, it was the first time they saw it. And so there was discussion then, and we will be bringing them back together again because everybody needs a little time to absorb it. Um, It's a very large report, and and, um, in the discussions, people there had some questions, and we tried to answer those questions, and they have some thoughts that might be bringing back, and we're going to get together again with them soon and and see what um, they've thought of and see what we can absorb. Meanwhile, the commissioner has a new board, that he uh, he started with, and um, in the in the long run, that will be going through with to them also, so that they have their put input into it, um, and then we have to see what the timeline is to implement some of it that we can implement. Um, we have immediately though, without any before the any votes on any of this, um, uh, the commissioner has now received money to modernize part of the of some of the buildings already. Um, to, to handle some of the safety factors and, you know, updating the, some of the wiring and, and um, things like that. So we're starting to work on it now. Um, our big thing has been to just making sure that uh, we take care of those veterans on, on, the, on the grounds. When you talk about that funding to help make some improvements, is that state money? Is that some kind of grant that you've received? So, so the, the money the lieutenant governor is talking about is, is state money? Um, but those are those are things that we have to get done regardless of what we do to uh, to our facilities. You know, they're they're ADA uh, type of improvements, they're fire and security type of imp- improvements, they're infrastructure improvements that just really have to get done to continue the uh, the campus moving forward. But uh, when we talk in terms of larger projects, bricks and mortar type projects to to update the residential facilities, we qualify for federal VA uh, grants, and we would certainly be uh, going uh, and, and applying for those grants combined with state money. So uh, we're excited about that as well. Um, I, the, the lieutenant governor mentioned the board. We have a dynamic board. Uh, thanks to uh, Governor Malloy, thanks to our leaders in the state legislature who have opportunities to to improve it or to appoint uh, individuals to that board. You mentioned the Program Review Investigations Committee as part of our obligations under the bill that came out from from that report. We have been providing reports to that board of trustees now on a quarterly basis. Uh, I'm no longer a full member of the board. I'm an ex-official member of the board, and we have a great chairman, uh, Christopher McDavid, uh, who's over at Pratt & Whitney uh, leading that uh, dynamic group. 
We'll have to take a break. This is where we live. When we come back, we'll find out more about Sean Connolly's first year as a state veterans commissioner. Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman is also in studio with us as we talk about how Connecticut can better serve its veteran population. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut's commissioner of the Department of Veterans Affairs is also in the U.S. Army Reserve. Sean Connolly is a lieutenant colonel serving with the 655th Regional Support Group at Westover Air Reserve Base in Chicopee. Governor Malloy appointed him to be state veterans commissioner more than a year ago. Are you a former service member or family member of a veteran and have a question for Commissioner Connolly? 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So, Commissioner Connolly, you've been in the commissioner post for more than a year. How's it been so far? Oh, my gosh. Has it been a year already, Lucy? <laughs> that is, uh, it's, it's really hard to believe. It's been a, a tremendous year for me. It's been uh, humbling. It's been uh, a tremendous honor to be able to serve our veterans. I mentioned 200,000-plus. We do have 200,000-plus veterans all around the state. To be able to serve them, to be able to get around and meet them where they are in their communities has been uh, really a huge honor for me. We've made some significant achievements over the last year-plus. We've got a long way to go, but we really are proud of a number of things that we've engaged in. One is our Office of Advocacy and Assistance I mentioned out there in the communities with our veteran service officers. We are making them more mobile so that they can be out where the veterans are with laptop computers, with mobile phones, with our Veterans Express bus so that they can be in locations where veterans can easily access their services. Uh, we've we've gotten more uh, transparent in our communications. We're on social media. I encourage your listeners to, 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 to like us on Facebook at CT Veterans Affairs if they don't already, really to see what we're up to, see what we've done, and see where you know what's coming up as far as uh, significant uh, actions. At our cemetery, I didn't mention our cemetery er- earlier. We have uh, three cemeteries. Two of them are still operational. Our Middletown State Veterans Cemetery, where this summer we should cut the ribbon on an expansion project a columbarium that we're really excited about so that we can continue to honor our veterans there for many more years uh, to come. Our partnerships with uh, the municipalities across the state of Connecticut, the lieutenant uh, governor and I uh, reached out to uh, every town in Connecticut uh, to ensure that they each have a veterans representative or a veterans commission and that we've brought them to our campus at Rocky Hill so that we can engage in them with training. They can see what, uh, what, what facilities are there and they can uh, let their veterans know uh, all around the state. Partnerships is huge. Our veteran service organizations in Connecticut are tremendous. Our American Legion, our VFW, Military Order of Purple Heart, AMVETS, uh, just to name a few. Uh, Really meeting with them quarterly now so that we can uh, engage together on ideas. Uh, We can move forward uh, together uh, on the same page. We're really excited about that as well. And one last thing I'll mention Mm -hmm. of many others is our expansion of our internship program. And we've engaged in MOAs, Memoranda of Agreement, with colleges and universities all across uh, the state of Connecticut. We've had almost 30 uh, interns in just this last year at our campus. Speaking of colleges and universities, I want to take a quick call from Maribel. Maribel, briefly, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning, Lieutenant Governor. Good Good morning, morning, Commissioner. Good morning, Maribel. And what's your comment or question, Maribel? I I just wanted to comment that um, at the state colleges and universities, we have uh, 17 campuses and um, our community colleges specifically, we have over 2,000 veterans, um, and it's not surprising that they're some of our some of our most highest achieving students. And at 
each and every one of our campuses, we have uh, what we call Veteran Oasis, a Veteran Oasis, which is like a student lounge where veterans can, you know, process paperwork, where they can study, where they can meet other veterans. And at our community colleges, you can... um, you can enroll right up until the last minute. So you can enroll right up until the end of August or September. And it's just a great, it's just a great opportunity that I think that um, more people should know about because we do, we do have, we do offer specific services for our veterans all across the campuses and our schools are rated some of the top um, military friendly schools in the country. Well, thank you, Maribel, uh, for that comment. So we know that there are ways to encourage uh, the veteran population to attend uh, our college and university system. Let's talk about unemployment, because I know after the recession, unemployment among the veteran population was very high. Um, Lieutenant Governor Wyman, what's the state doing to to help combat that statistic? And and let me also add to what Maribel said. Uh, We also have 100% tuition waivers for some of our veterans in our state colleges and universities. Um, At the same time, what we've done is uh, increased the access and training so that we have programs. We have now have, since we started this, a 1,000 companies have now given 3,300 of our veterans jobs. We have options for vets to, we call them vets to cops or vets to firemen. Um, The step up for vets, veterans, is where we go in and help the businesses and pay for the salaries of the veterans so that they could be trained right on the job in, in, our, uh, in the businesses. And at the same time, what we've been doing is in our university systems and in our, all our university systems, those um, veterans that come in, we will take some of their experience and mark that towards some of the credits that they have achieved. It's, they're called life, life credits. Um, to making sure that our veterans have jobs and have the ability to get into colleges. And as Maribel said, that Oasis group is amazing. If you walk in there to see all our veterans sitting there working with each other to get each other across that finish line of graduation. Um, So the state has done an awful lot to try to making sure that we're working with businesses. The other day, uh, the commissioner and I were at a graduation of veterans from the veterans' home that went from uh, employment uh, platform to employment. They got in there, they were trained, they were given clothes to wear, you know, understood how to go for a job and interview for a job. It's a training program that Joe Carbone down in Fairfield County has been doing for years, and it's right on our campus now uh, in Rocky Hill. So we're out there trying to make sure that they are the happiest. And that, if I may, Lucy, that's a huge program that demonstrates what Rocky Hill can be to our veterans because it combined both veterans who live on the campus. It was about half and half, veterans who lived on the campus as well as veterans coming from the community, coming in for the program during the day, going back to their community. So accessing those, accessing those services really uh, tremendous. And Mirabelle, uh, it makes a huge point with the Oasis Centers, like the mm-hmm. lieutenant governor. I visited uh, many of those Oasis Centers actually last November. I've, I think I visited 11 out of the 17 uh, around the state of Connecticut and still uh, will be visiting the, the remainder. But huge because you think in terms of this year is 15 years, later this year, 15 years uh, since uh, our nation experienced the horrific attack uh, on our own soil, of course, and uh, began Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so you look at the veterans coming out of those conflicts uh, who are in school now and how we serve them, the Oasis Centers are, are a great resource. 
And we know that you're an Iraq War veteran yourself. And we just have a, a couple more minutes left before the end of um, um, our show. But I wanted to speak to you about um, we just got out, it came out of a very difficult budget session um, within the General Assembly. Um, departments across the state have seen cuts. Um, we're hearing about um, service cuts. How um, has that budget crunch impacted what you're doing to help veterans around the state? Well, well, sure. Like uh, like all agencies, uh, you know, our, our budget has has decreased uh, some, but it's not stopping us from serving our veterans. I mentioned our core functions. We're rolling up our sleeves and working hard to to continue those services, uh, you know, for our veterans. Again, on the campus as well as out and about around the state, we've uh, uh, structural changes we've made to to try to conserve um, our, our resources. We've engaged in lean activities uh, over the summer. Um, we sent several of our managers to lean training, and so we're, we're thinking uh, in terms of new ways to, to, to run our agency uh, moving it forward. Any specific uh, state programs that have been cut that, Im- that impact veterans and their families? We have, we have not uh, at this time cut any services uh, that we provide at our department. Again, structural changes in how we uh, reduce expenses, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And again, we're almost out of time, but just quickly, I mentioned uh, families. You know, so often there's focus on veterans, and you know this, uh, Commissioner Connolly, but there are lots of caregivers out there for our Vietnam-era veterans, uh, for our recent veterans. How are these families getting support in the state? Can I just answer some of that? And, and when we look at our, um, uh, our families, there is, especially those of the families of our National Guard, men and women that are Many of them have been sent away more than once, and so their families left at home. Uh, there are services delivered through them also, so that when they're coming home um, or even when they're away, that the families are taken care of. There's an integration period, that, a reintegration period, and, and uh, so there's programs on that level also. So we are all working together um, to making sure that it, the family is a whole. And when we look at the soldier... We look at that person as a whole, and that means including their family, their children, sometimes their parents. Commissioner Connolly, do you want to add something? Just under a minute. I do. Uh, I mentioned our Leviteau Healthcare Center on our campus. It's long-term care chronic disease hospital. This year, another one of our achievements is to reinvigorate our respite program, and that's a respite program really for the family caregivers. Uh, those who are taking care of veterans in their homes can use our healthcare center up to 28 days uh, take their veteran there, take, so that allows them time to take care of themselves, take care of other things that they need to, uh, to take care of, and we're really proud of that program. And finally, our Patriots Landing Homes across the street from our main campus, that's set aside for veterans and their families, those who need that transitional housing. And since September, those have been filled uh, 100%, so we're excited about that as well. I want to thank Commissioner Sean Connolly. He leads the Connecticut's Department of Veterans Affairs. Also, Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman, so nice to have you in thank studio. You so much. When we come back, a conversation with one of the state's leading veterans advocates, retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and Iraq War veteran, Michael Zakea. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on tomorrow's show, news of antibiotic-resistant superbugs has raised a lot of concern in the United States. How much of a threat are they? On the next Where We Live, doctors and researchers will tell us everything we need to know about the spread of these infections and the role of antibiotics. That's on tomorrow's show. 
2014, there were 214,000 veterans living in Connecticut. How's Connecticut doing, meeting their needs, a population that's 93% male and almost 70% over the age of 55? Joining us in studio now is Michael Zakea. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps and a Iraq War veteran. He's an outspoken veteran advocate and also the director of UConn's Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans program. Mike, welcome back to where we live. Hi, Lucy. Thanks. So first off, uh, in the session, there were some bills that uh, were relevant to veterans living in the state of Connecticut. What passed that's going to help veterans who are living here? Uh, a couple of bills that we're very, very excited by. Uh, first was um, Senate Bill 1. I forget what the public act it wound up being, but it was the uh, Innovation uh, Act that um, promoted entrepreneurship and innovation in the state of Connecticut. And, uh, you know, for a number of years now, I've been saying that uh, veterans reentering the workforce as business owners is key to Connecticut's economic revival. So I think that was an important bill that we supported. The second one was uh, Senate Bill 2, and uh, that created a uh, veterans contracting preference for veteran-owned businesses uh, under $3 million. And that's really important. That that actually is the best in the country at this point. And um, uh, I think that really puts us on the map in terms of uh, nationwide in terms of um, promoting veteran business ownership. So we're very pleased with that. There was the um, uh, Health Records Act, which made... Uh, so when veterans apply for a disability claim, many times they have uh, health records at private uh, providers, and these are voluminous records, and they can private providers can charge money for health records. So we made that um, free, the, the request for those health records private providers no longer allowed to charge uh, for access to those health records. And then the last one that we're very uh, excited about is is part of the Education Act. But we – so school districts that are in session on Veterans Day and that have a veterans uh, curriculum are now able to be awarded a seal of distinction from the Department of Education. And we think that's really important for students to understand – you know, who the veteran community in Connecticut is and what they've done for our nation. So it's not just about getting a day off from school, but actually staying in school and learning about veterans in right. the community. Yeah. And, you know, you see these cartoons that uh, say, um, you know, what was the price of uh, when they have a barbecue on Veterans Day or whatever, and they say, or a furniture sale on Veterans Day. And, you know, it's not just another day off. It's, you know, people paid for this with their lives. And we want people to remember. And we want, especially because... The American public has become so distant from uh, veterans. Um, about 75% of Americans and uh, actually don't know any veterans, don't have anybody that they're aware of that are veterans. So the more we talk about it, the more that we uh, promote veterans um, in our school system, the more um, connected people will feel to this population of people who you know, protect our freedoms. You were talking a lot about we when you were mentioning um, each bill that passed this session. So I, I don't think I mentioned that you're part of the effort at least to create the Veterans Chamber of Commerce in the state of Connecticut. How do you work with legislators to get um, these bills passed? Uh, you know, I, I find um, our state legislators are very, very welcoming. They're actually very, very good partners. What I really have to do, and uh, I, I do a lot of the research um, and uh, you know, there is research out there, but uh, legislators don't have time to, you know, really get into the weeds on this stuff. But, you know, that's what I do. And I build the argument. I, I, I get the data. And I say, this is 
what it is. This is why we should do it. This is where Connecticut stands in relation to the other states. And then it becomes a um, much easier uh, argument to make why this creates value for our state, not just for the veterans community, but for the overall state. I was curious about some of the bills that came through the legislative session. Um, I also wanted to hear a little bit more about some of the cuts in the budget that was passed uh, that, that impact vet, the veteran community. Right. Um, well, you know, our state is uh, doing very, very well with regard to um, veterans' issues. Uh, one of the, uh, I think, touchstones or highlights is that uh, we ended uh, what is called structural veteran homelessness uh, in 2015. Uh, that is that we had no veterans who were structurally homeless. That is, um, you know, they were living outdoors, you know, without any access to uh, health care or, um, you know, housing. But the cut to the military support program basically eliminated um, funding for mental health care services for veterans. Um, and that's a problem because we know that the greatest predictor of veteran homelessness is untreated mental illness. So, you know, it's like uh, we accomplished this great thing, but, you know, just because we accomplished it doesn't mean that we're not going to, you know, slide back. And we're really at the beginning of dealing with these issues, not at the end. And, you know, I I hope that those uh, cuts to the mental health care services will be reinstated um, or uh, reapplied. Uh, because we don't want to slide back. We don't want people homeless. And ultimately what our vision is is that we have every veteran in the state of Connecticut is gainfully employed uh, and every veteran in the state of Connecticut is living in safe, secure, stable housing. You mentioned the military support program. So who runs that program and who would be getting services through it? Do we know? Uh, I know the person who runs it. I I don't know if I can say their name, but um, it's a state program that really supports the uh, it was originally designed to support the Connecticut uh, National Guard, um, but it has a larger mission to support veterans who um, have uh, don't have necessarily have access to other uh, health care services. So, for instance, people who have uh, less than honorable discharges or who are unable to access uh, the federal VA, um, and that they're people who really need uh, the the services. Uh, we know that one of the keys to uh, successful reintegration is access, timely access to uh, both physical health care and mental health care. So we're going to be planning a, a future show that's looking into some of the, the cuts in the budget that relate to mental health services. So we'll be sure to um, find out a little bit more about that cut that you're talking about. Um, I had met you, Mike, several years ago when I profiled the EBV program for NPR. Again, EBV stands for Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities. And the premise is that when veterans come home from their service or from deployments and, and they separate from the military, um, the premise is that after the recession, a lot of them, the unemployment rate was pretty high for the veteran population. And so this program, and I think it started at Syracuse University, but it would um, train veterans that they have the skills and how can you then use those skills that you learned in the military and open up your own business? And so I'm curious, um, what year are we in now where you've been leading this program and what are we seeing? Uh, You're right. We we did start... um uh, actually, six years ago, our first year was 2010. We are in our sixth class. We've graduated 135 veterans. We've started 100 businesses that have produced more than $30 million in gross revenues and 200 jobs. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, in addition, 
we've helped place 20 veterans into career track jobs, not entry level, but the kind of jobs where they're going to have a you know lifetime career. Uh, and we've helped um, a dozen veterans get into uh, what I would call career track uh, education. That is a uh, education environment that leads to a career, not just a job. Um, so you know we're really really happy with um, the uh, results of our of our program. Um, we're going into our seventh year. I am doing uh, accepting applications and uh, doing interviews and building the class for uh, 2016. Um, we have more applicants this year than we've ever had, so the word is definitely spreading and growing. And I have been saying since 2010 that there is um, pent up unanswered demand for entrepreneurial. Uh, education opportunities, and uh, you know that's completely what I'm seeing is that people really want to uh, start businesses, and I think that's really healthy. Uh, you know, there's just not enough resources to, you know, take care of all those people. So that's um, a great deal of what our challenge is: is to keep finding ways to, you know, promote veteran entrepreneurship in our state for everybody who wants to be a business owner. So when we hear about um someone opening or starting a business, we're here in Connecticut, and we hear often that it's difficult in Connecticut to start a business uh, based on regulation, maybe based on getting capital. So um, as someone who works um, with people to encourage them to become small business owners in Connecticut, what's the reality? It's not as bad as people say. Uh, It's actually getting better. And uh, the state legislature and both, both the state legislature and the executive branch are interested and um, helpful in trying to lower barriers to entry for veteran-owned business. What I really think is that um, this area of the economy has suffered from benign neglect for a couple of decades, and you know we're just sort of getting to the point where we're saying, "Oh, yeah, we have to do this," and you know we can create uh, laws and policies that promote uh, this. So you know, there's a lot of opportunity here in Connecticut. I actually believe that, and. A lot of opportunity in uh, information technology and um, small high tech manufacturing. Uh, obviously, we have a you know robust uh, defense industry footprint here that does a lot of subcontracting, um, and traditionally that's why Connecticut has been such a uh, fertile state for veteran-owned businesses. Um, compared to the other states on a per capita basis, uh, we actually have one of the highest ratios of veteran-owned businesses to veterans in the country. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing things to uh, make it easier. And uh, last year, we um, were able to get past the, the military pension is now 100% state income tax free. And all that does is put us on an equal footing with our neighbors, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. But that addresses a need, which is um, people who, workers, working age veterans who are between the ages of 25 to 45, um, you know, who can come here and start a second career business um, without uh, having uh, their military pensions uh, subject to state income tax. And ideally what they would do is use that um, money to start their business and to support their uh, the growth of their business. So, you know, we're, we're definitely taking initiative to promote this. And I really think that that's key to our economy recovering, you know, in the next uh, – my goal is by 2021 – so, you know, ultimately, I would like to create 5,000 veteran-owned businesses by 2021. How many veteran-owned businesses are in the state of Connecticut? Uh, a total, both fully owned and partially owned, 
a total of 42,000, but that's according to the 2012 survey of business owners. But that's the most recent data that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that comes from the, uh, the Census Bureau, but also working through the Small Business Administration. I am a, an appointee to the Advisory Committee on Veterans Business Affairs for the Small Business Administration. And, you know, we deal with these issues on a national basis. And, um, you know, that I think gives us an op- gives the state of Connecticut an opportunity to uh, compete on a national basis on, you know, this very particular area of the economy. I'm speaking with Michael Zakea. He's the director of UConn's EBV program, also a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps and a Iraq War veteran. Um, we were talking about the business climate here in Connecticut uh, for veterans. You had told me earlier um, before the show that there was a recent survey that was done by Wallet Hub, and they actually ranked Connecticut pretty low. Um, so that kind of is contradictory to what you're telling me. So right. what's your reaction to that? Uh, well, you know, they've been doing – Wallet Hub has been doing this uh, uh, sort of an index for several years now. Um, they uh, weight a number of economic uh, factors for ranking the states according to uh, – for uh, what states are best for veterans. And Connecticut ranked in the bottom 10. I. Yeah, that might have been true several years ago um, when I first started doing this work. I actually don't believe that anymore just based on the work that we've accomplished uh, both in the legislature and in with the Connecticut Veterans Chamber and then also with the EBV. Uh, you know, since we got the Military Occupational Specialty Act passed, uh, veteran unemployment in our state has dropped by more than 50 percent. Veterans are definitely getting back into the workforce and there are a lot more support mechanisms and we're doing a lot to create gateways to employment for veterans, uh, both in the small business economy and in the corporate uh, economy as well. So I really take exception to uh, what – both to the methodology of the Wallet Hub report and then to um, – I, I think that we're not getting our story out, uh, frankly. I think that we need to do a better job of telling the Connecticut story uh, to veterans. Um, you know, I'm in this sort of um, – I guess, ecosystem. So I get a lot of stuff from the southern states that say, oh, you know, we're attracting veterans, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're trying to bring veterans. And um, we're not doing that as a state. We're not saying, you know, come to Connecticut and, you know, this is how you'll be treated and this is how far your money will go. We're doing things for for veterans who want to get into uh, the defense industry, et cetera. I think we can be doing a lot more. That's interesting because we hear so often um, that states are trying to lure uh, northerners to the right. south, the southern states, uh, to allure to lure the the, the Yankees, uh, so to speak, right. uh, to the south. But we don't hear that message from Connecticut right. that veterans should come and live here. Right, and uh, you know, I think we should. Uh, you know, the the tough part is the winters. I mean, you, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. But I know just anecdotally of uh, a number of veterans who are moving down to you know, Florida, South Carolina, Texas, whatever. Um, you know, I think that veterans are treated better uh, in Connecticut than they will find that they're treated in South Carolina. And legislatively, that is true. Earlier in the show, we heard from the state commissioner for Veterans Affairs, Sean Connolly. Um, I'm speaking with Iraq War veteran Michael Zakea. What do you see are the biggest challenges um, facing veterans who live in the state of Connecticut? I think the biggest challenges are um, making these connections. You know, the the, the buzzword now is um, either wraparound services or the warm handshake. Uh, a lot of these things are you know, stovepipe. So one person will go to one organization, one service provider or whatever, and they'll fix or address one issue. But then 
you know, that there's that's connected to a whole bunch of other issues that, you know, then the veteran has to sort of navigate through a maze of nonprofits and state agencies and whatnot to try to and to try to create a solution for him or herself. Uh, what we really need to do is uh, these organizations, and it, there's a model for this that I talk about. It's called the Sea of Goodwill, but it posits a pr- private-public partnership, a partnership between not-for-profits, for-profits, and government agencies to uh, create holistic solutions for veterans. Um, I, and we're, we're getting there. We're, there's a lot of uh, intra-agency and um, organizations that are ad hoc organizations that are sort of umbrella that bring all these stakeholders to the table to work together. And I don't know that there are other places doing that. I think we're small enough to do that. And, you know, we know all the people in, in the whole ecosystem. We can create these solutions. There's a new consultant report um, that looked at the the Rocky Hill Veterans Home that the state operates. And um, some of the, the data that they found is that the veteran population will decline over the years. But mostly the veterans who are living in the state of Connecticut are older males. And so I'm wondering, as someone who's from the Iraq War uh, generation, we hear often about more women that are in the military. How are younger veterans and women veterans being um, served in the state? Uh, You know, very interesting that you ask that. So I am a member of all these veterans organizations. And just this month, or past month, May, uh, you know, all the magazines come out. And in several of them, they talked about, you know, how did the veteran service organizations reach out to the post-9-11 generation of veterans who are prim- primarily millennials. I mean, I, I'm an older Iraq veteran, but uh, they're primarily... Uh, I can't imagine you want to be called a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I wish, but um, they're primarily millennials. And, you know, the, the conclusion is that the veteran service organizations are not providing the kind of services and uh, meeting the needs of, you know, the millennial generation of combat veterans. One of the things about the, the Rocky Hill is, and they really... Millennials, you know, really are sort of atomized, and a lot of it has to do with the way the economy has sort of, um, or even social media has sort of shaped uh, this generation. Uh, you know, they all communicate on either Facebook or like Twitter or you know Snapchat or whatever, but they don't congregate in one place the way you know people used to go to the VFW or the American Legion and you know drink beer and smoke cigarettes and you know play bingo or whatever. Um, so it, it, it's become very different, and the groups become virtual. So, for instance, a lot of military units um, all stay in touch with each other, but they do it, you know, via Facebook or something like that. So that's where they're finding their their um, camaraderie rather than at the, you know, the local... Uh, VFW. Right. Um, one of the things about the Rocky Hill is, um, and a lot of the millennials don't object to this idea of being warehoused, right? They don't want to just be stashed somewhere and forgotten. Um, you know, uh, you know, sequestered from the rest of the the population, they sort of want to be out and doing things, and um, you know, that's part of what we want. Is we want people to be fully integrated into um, the civilian economy, and you know, there's significant proof that um, doing that creates economic, social, and political value for our state. We've had you on the show several times, and I think. What's interesting about your story is that, you know, you came back from the war with a service, a very serious service-connected disability, and you've managed to become an advocate and, you know, really, I guess, have a new career path. And I'm, I'm curious what advice you would give to veterans who are struggling, who are listening. Uh, you know, I find working with 
post 9-11 veterans is that the impulse to be part of the solution is universal. You know, every single veteran that you talk to says, you know, I want to give back. I want to help other veterans. I want to, you know, in some way. Um, so I, I don't think that that makes me unusual. What I think uh, everybody sort of has, and uh, very early on, I developed this idea that I wanted to go from being part of the problem to being part of the solution. And I think that it was uh, my responsibility to explore every avenue uh, to recover from my wounds and to uh, rehabilitate and um, to get to a p- place where I could help other people. And I think many veterans are like that. Um, they're just in a different tra- uh, place in the trajectory on that path. So, you know, I think that the most important thing people can do is to reach out. Don't isolate, especially if there are people listening and, you know, they're having problems if they're by themselves, if, you know, they're thinking about harming themselves. Reach out to somebody uh, immediately. And, you know, if you can't call the VA crisis hotline, call somebody else. Call call a neighbor, call another veteran, um, you know, call somebody. But, you know, you don't have to go through this alone. And that's that's really the important message is that, you know, we're all We've all been there. We've all been uh, downrange, and we're all uh, in this together. So it's great to talk to you, Michael Zakay, again uh, through the Yukon EBV program, also a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps and a Iraq War veteran. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can continue the conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.